You are now listening to the Minority Trailblazer Podcast. Let the story begin. One time for the lovers, two times for the ladies, three times for the brothers, four times for the babies. Do you love her? 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 One time for the lovers, two times for the ladies, three times for the brothers, four times for the babies. Do you love her? 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 Brown skin, love a brown skin, love a brown. Brown skin, love a brown skin, love a brown. She my brown skin, love a brown skin, love a brown. She my brown skin, love a brown skin. Hold me down. Ooh, every time I hear that intro, I get hyped. Brown skin, love a brown skin, love a brown. I almost was tempted to rap a little bit on it, but you know, I ain't trying to have people crashing their cars or calling in and be like, yo, you doing too much. I already do too much in the intro, but I don't want nobody calling and saying I'm doing too much again. Uh, my bad, yo. I'm, I'm, I'm pumped up because, you know, it's a Thursday. I know it's a little late. I didn't get it out at 7 a.m. Yesterday was a long, 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 long day. So I didn't get it out at 7 a.m., but we're here now, and I appreciate y'all tuning in and listening. I don't really got no housekeeping things, but I do got two things to say. One, I'm pissed off. Pissed off. I don't know how many of you can agree with me, but I have a problem. I lose headphones. I've lost four pair of headphones over the last three months, and I am not okay with this. That's why I would never get any Apple iPods, because I know that small uh, toothpick-type case, not toothpick, but like, you know, the, the, the floss-type case, oh, no, uh-uh, that'll be in somebody's garage, somebody's car, and then, you know, you call that person like, yo, have you seen my headphones? Oh, no, bro, I ain't, I ain't even seen your headphones, bro. And you see him next time with all these headphones, I'm like, bro, is those my headphones? Oh, Come on, bro. You know everybody got the same headphones at Apple, man. Nah, this ain't your headphones. And all of a sudden, I'm just out here looking headphones. Like, yo, I only go but so many places right now. So I'm trying to find out where my headphones are. So if I know you, you listen to this podcast, and you, we've been in the same car, been in the same vicinity, etc. You got my headphones. Please return them next time I see you. All right? Uh, second, second, second. Uh, the theme of this episode, this episode is phenomenal. Like the young lady that I have on this episode, what she has been able to do with her nonprofit, what she's been able to do as a single mother, what she's been able to do for the city of Charlotte and the youth in the city of Charlotte. Ooh, like it's, it's, I, I can't speak on it enough. And I'm glad I have her on this show to kind of share her story. Also share some really great tips on how to approach and get big contracts and become a contractor. And just the way she kind of moves and navigates and thinks about life. I mean, household of 10 individuals she grew up in, Gastonia, small city in North Carolina. And yo, she has a phenomenal story. But also, too, I want to segue to this point. Um, a couple of days ago, I was in Bible study class and we were talking about greatness and the context was, is why black men don't go to church. Not black men, but why men don't go to church. I'm going to leave that there. I'm not going to go into that right now. This ain't that type of podcast. But we were having a discussion about greatness and something, epiphany popped in my head. And I was like, yo, this is dope. I want to share it with the podcast audience, right? So I was thinking that greatness is not what you do. It's who you are. 
And the reason why I came up with that, because I've been watching documentaries on, on famous people, politicians, athletes that at one point in the career were on the top of everybody's mind. Millionaires can get any woman they want. They had children, they had love, adoration of many fans across the country, across the world. And a lot of them ended in situations that were unfortunate, that people forgot about them, that they forgot about themselves, mental hospitals, depression. Bankruptcy. And you see it all the time in popular culture. People that on the outside accomplish so, so much. You're like, yo, they're great people. What's going on? And even in your life right now, some of you are searched for greatness. You up, you grinding every single day. You getting feedback. You going to coaches. You listening to podcasts. You doing every single thing to be as much successful as you can to be great. And some of you, when you go home, you when you, when you turn off these things, you feel a little bit unfulfilled. It may feel a little bit like, yo, what am I really doing? Like, how, how can I do more, 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 more? In reality, that's not what greatness really is. And 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 and, and there's a it's a lot it's a way 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 bigger conversation than that. But what if greatness was your guesses being your guesses, or your nose being your nose, or you when you saying you're gonna do something, you do it and you do it 110. percent If you say you're gonna show up, you show up. Being consistent, always keeping that same type of attitude and consistently growing. What if greatness, the standards of greatness were just still as high, but stuff that people didn't see? Because I, I realize even in my own life, a lot of times all my greatness metrics and stuff I was trying to do was, was what, where people were seeing me. And the stuff where people didn't see, I didn't care about that being great. But then I realized, hey, I think I'll be more complete of a person. I'll be a better person if I put all my time or majority of my time and energy on being great at the stuff that people don't see. Like, seriously, what if society put a lot of their time and being great at the stuff that people don't see? I guarantee people will be happier. Customer service will be better. Relationships with your children, relationships with your grandparents, your parents, they'd be better. Society just be a, a better place in general. But we all put, and I mean, and we're all victim of this, but we, a lot of us put greatness on what people can see. And when the stuff that people don't see, the stuff that's in the dark, we don't care. It can be average. It can be substandard. And I can speak for myself. I think my biggest growth area this year is honoring my commitments. I have a bad, 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 bad habit of saying yes to a lot of things and being consistent on a commitment for a couple of times and then falling off the face of the earth. I'm like a 50-50 guy, to be real. And I've bumped that up to around like 65% over the last couple months. But I, at the end of the year, I want to be around 100%. If I say I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it until I can't do it anymore. Or until I have a conversation with you to, to, to let you know, okay, here's why I cannot do it. And then move forward. But I don't want to look at my life. And I've been writing down in the Excel spreadsheet everything that I say I'm committed to. Whether it's following up with a young lady who wanted to be a motivational speaker. Or following up with the young man that has this platform, he needs advice, and I said I'm going to help, I didn't help. Like, I, I put in a Excel spreadsheet every single thing that I'm committed to, and I need a status on every, like, am I, am I honoring that commitment, or am I not? And by the end of the year, I want every single commitment on there to be honored. And the only way I'm going to do that is taking away stuff I cannot do, having conversations with stuff that I can do, but I need to alter the rhythm, and I need to grow in that area because that's what greatness is. Greatness is, yo, I know Greg. He's going to be accountable. His yes is his yes. He's honest. He does what he needs to do. And the thing is, once I do that, 
Because your spirit knows when you're doing all that stuff, right? So that's why when you're unfulfilled, you know what you should be doing differently. You know what you should be doing better. You know all these things, but you want to cry or you want to think about, oh, I'm unfulfilled. I don't know my purpose or whatnot. No, let's look at what you're doing in the dark. Look, 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 look at those greatness things that people can't see. Are you living up to that? Because I guarantee if you live up to that, you ain't going to have no great. You're not going to have no guilt. You're going to be able to, to live, to smile, and be full of yourself in every situation and be present. But when that thing is not fulfilled, when those things are not getting done, I don't care what is getting done in the public. You're going to feel empty. But, yo, I got to get off that soapbox right now because y'all almost got me to level 10. And y'all going to give me level 10 right now. No, 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 no. We ain't doing that. We ain't doing that. But... I just want to set a tone for this show. It's going to be a great show. Thank y'all for tuning in. I appreciate all the love and support. I appreciate every single email, every single tweet, all this stuff. And we ain't even been on social media promoting the podcast, and it's still booming, man. So I love y'all. I know I didn't get released at 7 a.m. Uh, blame it on. Uh, put it on me, all right? <laughs> but y'all enjoy this show and keep thriving, all right? Welcome to the Minority Trailblazer Podcast, and I'm your host, Greg E. Hill, the culture change agent on this show we interview young successful minorities in a variety of fields to educate empower and inspire our current and future generational leaders and you already know today i got a show for you she graduated from the university of north carolina at charlotte with her bachelor's of arts degree in sociology making her a first generation college graduate she went on to climb the corporate ladder Moving from North Carolina to South Carolina to Texas and essentially traveling across the country for a career where she worked as a regional performance director for one of the largest property management companies in the United States. She's accumulated over 10 years of training experiences, six years of management experience, and has recently earned her master's of science degree in leadership from Grand Canyon University, making her the first person in her family to receive a graduate degree. She has also obtained her certification as a professional life coach, as well as a small business consulting certification. Today, she is pursuing her PhD in general psychology with the emphasis on industrial and organizational psychology. Without further ado, I would like to welcome Miss Vernicia Crawford. Hope I said that right to the Minority Trailblazer podcast. Welcome to the show. Welcome. Thank you so much. <laughs> no, nah, I'm, I'm excited. You got all this wealth of experience. Ten years it is, six years of that, working on the PhD. I'm just ready to be enlightened. <laughs> well, I hope I can enlighten <laughs> some way. <laughs> so first and foremost, I would like to say thank you so much for giving us your time to be on the show. And as we always do, we like to show, start the show off with some good energy, the buzz. So, Miss Crawford. Can you share with us a quote and a story about how you acquire that quote to your everyday life? Yes. Um, so this is actually an original quote. Um, just I, <laughs> I read a lot of books. I go to a lot of classes, um, you know, listen to a lot of TED Talks and all of that stuff. So the quote that I have for you guys is to identify the non-negotiables in your life and then stop negotiating. Um, I'm gonna say that one more time to identify the non-negotiables in your life and mm. then stop negotiating. Mm. Um, the story behind that or how I apply that to my life. Um, I want you guys to think of a time where you were doing something you really didn't want to do. You were either doing it to please somebody. You was doing it for somebody. You was doing it because you think you needed to do it to get to the next space um, or the next place in your life. You thought you needed to do it um, to progress or you thought you you were doing it because someone told you that you needed to and you just wasn't feeling it. You know, you wasn't enjoying it. 
Um, and what that is, is it's your body. When your energy is like not happy, when it's not in a good space, when you're not enjoying what you're doing, or you're at least if you, even if you don't have peace about it, that means that you are negotiating your happiness for something. Uh, you're negotiating your peace for something. And I myself have found myself doing that all the time. I grew up a people pleaser. Mm-hmm. And we are just the absolute worst. I mean, <laughs> we're just the absolute worst. We will do whatever to please everyone except for ourselves. And so I had to identify in every area of my life, like, wait a minute, what am I negotiating for my happiness and for my peace and for my joy? Like, what am I sacrificing and giving up uh, for someone else or for something else? Um, and I think we oftentimes convince ourselves to do something for the greater good. Um, and that's fine, but not when you have to sacrifice your own good. Mm. And when you can identify the things that you're not willing to negotiate, for example, I'm not willing to negotiate time with my daughter. I'm not willing to negotiate my own education. I'm not willing to negotiate, you know, my money, you know, and my time. So if there's something that is causing me to try to develop some type of compromise, with something that I'm not willing to negotiate with, I had to stop it. I have to stop it. Um, so yeah, identify the non-negotiables in your life and then stop negotiating. Oh man, I love that. I love that. Have you you haven't even written a book, have you? I have not. Well, I can't. I can't wait till one comes out, man. I, I just can't wait. I can just tell by the way you delivered that and the story and the way you set it up. I can't wait. I, I got to get the first copy. Hold me to it too. Just send me the little link, the little uh, the prepaid link, boy, and I and I got you. I can't. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. I receive it. <laughs> but uh, this show, I'm excited personally for the show because we're gonna span um a, a variety of different topics, going from. Just your foundation, kind of what ma- what makes you who you are, going all the way from your path to entrepreneurship. Because before you even started your own business, you had a, a variety of different experiences that kind of groomed you to who you are today. Uh, talk about being a single mother and uh, being an entrepreneur as well, because I think I think that's 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 lane, that's territory that we haven't really done too often on this show, as well as working. There's a lot of stuff you just want to talk about. So I just want to start off with the foundation, like share with our audience kind of who you are, where you come from and all that good stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I grew up in a small city called Gastonia and inside Gastonia, there's a really small town called Ranlo. Um, and it's really not that big. We literally have one street light. <laughs> um, <stop> <laughs> um, you know, so I'm a little country girl, a little Southern country girl. And, um, I grew up very, very sheltered, grew up in the church. My parents were those parents who, um, I like to say that I feel like they were so bad growing up that, um, that they wanted to make sure that their children did not repeat their footsteps. So they just, created this like military type of structure in our home. Um, I remember my dad, he would wake us up at 6 a.m. every morning and we would have to do these crazy little exercises. Um, we would have to recite scriptures. What? Um, then, yeah, I'm so serious. There was like multiple scriptures that we had to memorize and we had to recite them every morning. Um, then he would go into Bible study. This is 6 a.m. in the morning, mind you. How many, um, and how many siblings did you have? Oh, it's ten of us. Whoa! So, so yeah, all. I mean, of course, the y'all came at different times, but it was like six or seven of y'all just 
quoting scripture, doing exercises in the Bible study. Like, walk us through a Bible study. Was it like a 10-minute boy or the 30-minute oh, boy? No, no, man. It was like 45. So. He was doing sermons? Yes. Early in the morning, we getting up at 6 a.m. You know, we had to hurry up, brush our teeth. We line up in the hallway in a circle. He have us like lift our hands up, touch our toes, lift our hands up, touch our toes. Then we would recite three or four scriptures that he made us memorize. Um, and I keep saying he, but it's him and my mom. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he would then, you know, open up the Bible, read a whole nother scripture, give a breakdown of it. And we would just have, we would also, we would have to do the standing for 30 to 45 minutes. Mm-hmm. Then after that, we would get ready for the day. This was summer, winter, spring, fall. Three years? Yeah. Wow. Three years. So there was a lot of structure in my home. Um, we would go to church. We would go to school. We would go to church. Then we had five o'clock prayer. Five o'clock prayer also was a Bible study. Um, was your dad a preacher? Nope. Nope. My dad was not a preacher. My mom was They were just moved by the spirit. Goodness gracious. Continue. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I really think they just didn't want us to be as bad as they were. Um, and they don't really talk about, um, you know, their childhood a lot. But I know that they have made some, you know, questionable decisions. Um and so I think they just did. They just wanted to protect us and prevent us from going down a path that we would we we would regret. Um, and so I appreciate that structure. Granted, I mean I was a late bloomer in everything and naive about a lot of things, but that structure really kind of helped shape who I am today and how I live my life and how I raise my daughter. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean I would definitely do a lot of things differently. But so um, you be having it up at six a.m. too. No, 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 no. I let her sleep in. <laughs> I let her sleep in. Um, but I do read the Bible to her, though. I do read the Bible to her, though. So, um, but yeah, you know, we I, I had a really, you know, structured life. Um, you know, I was one of those girls that you would see in school with a long skirt. So I wasn't allowed to wear pants. I wasn't allowed to wear jewelry. I wasn't allowed to wear makeup. Couldn't perm my hair. Um, it's really crazy. Um you know, especially what I'm doing now, but I wasn't really, you know, taught to embrace my body. It was more so cover it up. No one needs to see it. Um, you know, you need to focus on school. You need to focus on like things of substance, things that's really going to, you know, get you somewhere in life. And so your outer appearance is definitely not one of those things that was all about being spiritual and smart, um, growing up. So that's, you know, my background, um, you know, um, from home. Yeah. Yeah. And then you ended up going. So in high school, so you were like the straight A student in high school or I was a teacher's pet. Yeah, <laughs> you was bringing like the apples and oh, <laughs> and, like, and all that good stuff. Um, I never brought my teacher gifts because we couldn't afford it. But um, I definitely made sure that when no one else spoke in class, I did. Um, I wanted to get the most out of class. And I love school. I remember crying if I ever missed the bus. I'm like, I don't want to miss school. You know, it was kind of like an outlet, you know, away from home and <laughs> church. So I tried to get involved as much as I possibly could while um, in all grades. I mean, I remember in second grade was the first time I received a scholarship and that was to learn Spanish. Um, You know, in middle school, um, I became the student body president, you know, and I was in environmental club, chess club. And then, you know, high school, I was a part of not just organizations in high school, but then you know, in the community. So I was a part of a youth philanthropy um, 
teen group that's still going on today. I was in the inaugural class for that, and it's 11 years later. And it, gosh, 11 years. Um, but 11 years later, <laughs> strong. You know, three of my brothers and sisters have went through that program as well. And then I was a part of the Mayor's Youth Leadership Council um, in Gastonia, which was also a really big deal. And at um, at the time, the mayor was Mayor Jenny uh, Schultz, and we still communicate today, you know, on Facebook, which is really cool. Um, and all of that really just set me up to, um, to go to college, you know, because being a first generational college student, first generation college student, you don't really know what to expect. But I remember, um, I'm the fourth oldest of the 10 and my oldest sister, she's number two. You'll hear me refer to them as numbers because that's what we do is too many of us. <laughs> <laughs> but she went to, she was the first one to kind of like leave the nest. When she um, went to college, she went to DeVry University in Atlanta. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, wow, she took on Atlanta. So I wanted to be like her. Like she was like my role model. To this day, she's really taught me so much about life and really a lot about education. She's the reason why I'm so smart. Um but yeah, I wanted to be like her and I wanted to leave the nest. And my parents was like, no, you are going up the road to UNC Charlotte, 30 minutes from home. Um, and I think that was just because of my naivety and me being small and just, you know, the little runt of the family. So I was like the baby girl for a really long time. So um, my experience in college, uh, thank God I was so involved, you know, in mm-hmm entry middle school and high school because it really helped me transition a little bit more smoothly than I felt like I would have had I not been so involved you know in mm-hmm. my young so yeah <laughs> and if I got I got two questions uh real quick before we kind of jump into your post-college journey uh <laughs> one the first question is for all of us that maybe grew up in a single parent I mean not single parent household but grew up in like a one person it was just us only child and maybe had two or three what was it like having all that energy in the household and, and growing up with like siblings like what what kind of lessons did you learn or what what were some takeaways from growing up in such a a big household Yeah okay so I would say um one you your your family become your best friends mm-hmm. you know so I never really um, established really close friendships outside of my brothers and sisters. So there would be people I would see in school. Okay, great. You know, maybe in school we would say we were friends or best friends, but really, you know, um, I would, they would never be the first people that I call on for anything. It would, it would always be my sister. My sisters would be the ones that, you know, I could cry to laugh with, um, you know, play around with, just joke around with, or have a good time, have a bad time and everything still be okay. So, you know, we are each other's friends. Um, and that is, it's a good thing, but it can, you know, make you a little socially awkward. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) (laughs) you know, it can create like, um, I don't know some challenges when you begin to try to establish friendships in the real in the real world because what people expect from you as a friend I associate friend with family friend mm. with sister friend with brother so I'm like nah you ain't my brother and you're not my sister so I can't be that type of friend for you so I think um growing up in that big of a family it kind of uh redirected how we look at friendship and look at other people. It's kind of like a mini cult. And I I know that's like, it has (laughs) connotation to it, but you know, it's like, even today we're like us Crawfords, us Crawfords, Crawfords, this Crawfords, that, and it's like, no one can get in this little circle, which is not really healthy, (laughs) but, um, but you know, 
that's one of the things that um, we experienced. And I feel like um, I, I've grown to love that about my family because it's always I can always go and chat with any of them and feel like, you know, home, you know, that I've we can go months and years without talking to each other and, you know, ha- pick up the phone, have one conversation. And it's like we never left. So outside of that, I think some of the funny things that I had to deal with was um, we had to find our place being in. Mm-hmm a big family everybody couldn't be allowed everybody couldn't be the leader um everybody couldn't be the funny one and my role was really to just shut up and sit there and not cause any problems oh so, man that's the worst role of the day you I, just i mean that's it's kind of the easiest role too though right <laughs> i got the short end of the stick um i mean and i really didn't have a voice i didn't have an opinion i just was just like i was teacher's pet i was a little goody two shoes at home um you know, I, I rarely got whoopings. My older brothers and sisters, everybody else got tons of whoopings. So I took my time and learned from them um, what to do and what not to do. So um, there was a lot of sharing that we had to do, um, you know, and I felt like, you know, we didn't grow up with a lot of money, you know, so uh, to society standards, you know, we were poor. Um, but you know, my dad worked so hard. We never had food stamps. We never had, um, you know, we were never a part of the welfare system, but, um, there were times where, you know, we ate bread for dinner, um, or we just had fried chicken or, uh, we had bologna sandwiches like over and over. And I will (laughs) say, I will not eat a fried bologna sandwich because we (laughs) so much growing up, but, um, so to society, we were considered poor. Um, and I didn't know that I was really poor until I started comparing myself to, you know, my peers, you know, I was in all the smart classes growing up, all of them were, you know, the people in the classroom were white, um, or Caucasian rather. Um, And so I didn't realize that I was poor until I really started looking at everything that they had um, and everything that I didn't. But if I was just to focus on how I felt at home, I never felt poor. I never felt like I went lacking for something. I enjoy bread, you know, until the day. Oh, um, bread and butter. Somebody, I was talking to somebody the other day. It was like, yo, you don't eat bread and butter? Like, am I the only one? Bread and, I be killing bread. I don't do it anymore that much. But back in the day, I would go through a whole loaf and just put bread and butter. Not toasted either. Just the regular bread and butter boy. <laughs> I would add a little bit of cheese on mine. We, we would make cheese toast with a little bit of butter. We would toast it. It would be so good. Like, put it in the oven, put some cheese on there, <laughs> the butter on there. Um, but And that was a meal, and we was fine and happy with it with some orange juice or some hot tea. Um, but you know, so our life was really full growing up. I mean, definitely had a lot of challenges, a lot of, um, you know, issues with family dynamics and things of that nature, but I, I still never felt like I was lacking. Mm-hmm. Um, I maybe had ran over tennis shoes. I may, maybe, you know, was wearing hand-me-downs and clothes that were too big, but the outward appearance never even mattered anyway. So, um, but yeah, growing up in a big family, it's it's something it's really hard to describe and you can't really sum it up in anything. I mean, I could write a whole book about that for sure. Yeah. Is, your, is your daughter in the office with you now? <laughs> no, no, because she would have been you would have heard her. <laughs> <laughs> but she's not with me right now. And then the, the last question I have before we kind of move past the uh, past college is. What would you say was like probably the toughest thing that you um that you went through the, during your growing years that had the most impact on who you are today? 
Hmm, am I adult years or no, am no, no, I- no, 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 your, your, your growing years, like oh, your foundational growth. years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Up okay. until like college. I mean, up until like going through college. Okay. Um, I would say, um, I remember my dad telling me to, um, get my education, like get your education, get your education, get your education. He wanted me to be a doctor. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, I don't want to be a doctor because I hate blood. I hate hospitals. I hate the smell. I hate the colors. Um, I'm not doing that. He And I remember he t- him telling me that I was smart enough to be a doctor and I could be, you know, the one in the family to become a doctor um, and kind of just like shift and change things. And so, you know, within our family um, and I just followed. I'm like, nope. But the one thing I did take away is get your education, get your education. And so that's always stuck with me. And so that's been something that I have valued so much. Um, you know, when people look at my resume or look at the things that I've accomplished, it's not just to say I did it. It's because I really have a hunger to learn And I don't think that hunger will ever be satisfied. So I do consider myself a lifetime student. Um, And, you know, you don't necessarily have to take classes or courses uh, to to learn, but you learn from people. And so that's always been um, one of the things that has been my driving force, which is to become educated and search for and receive more knowledge um, because you can never not know enough. Mm-hmm. And one of the things we talk about in our PhD, uh, in my PhD program is how we, we learn so much only to know nothing um, because at the end of every lesson, there's always a question that can challenge the lesson that you just learned. So um, I feel like my dad having that conversation with me and then my oldest sister, number two, um, her taking her time to teach me everything that she learned in school before I started kindergarten and before before each grade. Um, I already knew the lessons because my oldest sister, she would come home, do her homework with me and play wow. we would school. So she would teach me everything that she was learning in school. And she was two grades ahead of me. Wow. So. Her doing that partnered with my dad talking, you know, telling me and teaching me and get your education, get your education. I think that has really, um, really like paved the way to where I am now, because everything that I do is, you know, calculated Um, (laughs) and that can be bad sometimes. But it all stems from me learning and teaching myself or putting my place in a position to learn before I, you know, um, put action to what it is that I want to do. Yeah, nah, that's that's perfect, and that's a perfect segue into life after college. So, one, what was your major in college, and two, what was your first job out of college? Yeah, so my major was uh, well, it started with kinesiology um, because I thought I was going to outsmart my do- my my dad and become um, a physical therapist. And in order to become a physical therapist, you have to get a doctorate degree. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm like, okay, I can do physical therapy. I had a physical therapy internship in high school to test it out. And I, um, at that time I enjoyed it. So went to UNC Charlotte, started in kinesiology. And I remember, I think it was my sophomore year. I took a, um, course and they told us that they, 
um, had an athletic training program that only selected 17 students. And I looked around the room and there was like 200 people <laughs> in my classroom. And this is just one of my classes. So I'm like, how in the heck am I going to be selected out of these 17 people? They also said that, you know, the athletic training field or the physical therapy field was not um, really um, welcoming a female. So mm-hmm. there's a lot, of, you know, so it was a lot of competition um, and males dominated that field. So I'm like, OK, what can I do to make myself um, have a chance or, you know, be able to compete, you know, in this field. So I decided to go to massage therapy school while in college, my sophomore year. So I went to massage therapy school during the day. And then I went to UNC Charlotte during the night full time at both schools to make myself more competitive in this field. And I fell in love with massage therapy. It was great. And after I got my certificate, my licensing in massage therapy, I um, went and got another internship in physical therapy and I absolutely hated it. Mm. I was like, oh my God. Why'd you hate it? Um, Because it wasn't massage therapy. Massage therapy is something, it's more spiritual to me. Mm-hmm. And that's what we talked about in class. And then we, it's more, um, your clients are instantly relieved of the pain that they're feeling. You know, a lot of people do get massages just to relax, but you know, in school you learn how to actually work through pain and knots and kinks and, you know, um, all of those things. And so physical therapy. So within an hour, my client can feel better with physical therapy. This is six months. You know, people come in, they hate coming. (laughs) You know, they leave mad. The energy is all different. You had that copay. You're like, bro, I'm paying $25, $50 for you to tell me to do these exercises that I don't want to do that hurt me. I, I don't want to see you no more. I'm trying to. Yeah, I feel you. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so I was like, OK, this is not what I want to do. So I just stuck with massage therapy, started working at um, a spa here in Charlotte. And that really helped me pay my way through college. Um, and that's what led me to start my first business, which was a mobile massage therapy company. So I would travel around, do chair massages for different businesses and universities. Um, and so after realizing that I didn't want to study physical therapy anymore, I changed my major to sociology. Had no idea mm-hmm. what I was going to do with that. Um, at that point, I was just going to continue with massage therapy. Um And I didn't realize what I was doing in business at that time. I was just, you know, making some money, doing something that I love, studying, you know, trying to, you know, work toward my um, undergrad degree. Um, And so that's that's what I was doing. Mm -hmm. So after I graduated college with my sociology degree, I'm like, dang, what am I supposed to do with this? Um, (laughs) That's what everybody. Side note, side note, one thing, one thing, one thing. I'm yeah. I'm so upset and pissed at myself and I guess society in general that for some reason I worked I had my own business in college but there was some I still should have I felt like I could have paid my way through school like I'm I'm interviewing so many people that that really had the mindset that I'm I have a job I might as well pay for it right then mm-hmm. and I just never I never thought about it even though I was making money doing my own thing I never thought about paying like just paying I, and I had a scholarship it wasn't even that much but I ne- <laughs> and I got these student loans I was like I could have I could have easily paid my way through school so if you are a high school student or a college student right now please a- adapt your mindset if possible like I said if you work at, if you at Georgetown or somewhere that's like 30 50 grand a year then okay you know <laughs> then okay then don't do it if you at a state school 
Pay your way through school, man. Don't 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 graduate with no damn loans. I shout out to you, Miss Crawford. Shout out to you. You know, I try. I try. Because I'm like, I'm like, yo, I'm keeping me and these people like, I could have paid my way through school, but I just didn't. I didn't think about it like that. I'll have the same amount in my savings for tuition. And I just, I never thought, nobody told me like, yo, just, you can pay your way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you can. I mean, and even if you don't want to pay all of it, pay some of it. You know, anything helps. Anything else. But yeah, so after after school, you had that idea. And somebody in my church told me the other day, like, anytime you get them IGs, um, them Lodgy degrees, any any degree with like the Lodgy behind it, <laughs> that you have to get like a, a grad degree or whatnot, because right out of college, you just, you had swag surfing for jobs. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, um, those ology degrees are, <laughs> they're, they're great for knowledge, but, um, and they're general degrees, I feel like. And I, and I know that sounds bad and, you know, I may offend some people when I say that, but, you know, the things that you learn in there is really like life skills. It's like a degree in how to navigate and manage people, especially sociology is managing, you know, it's the study of people, um, groups of people, different types of people. And psychology is, you know, the study of the mind and how that, that works. So, um, you know, it is hard because you don't learn a skill set that can really land you in a specific role after, uh, working. What they give you is like, oh, if you study psychology, here are some pathways you can take. One of them was management. So, um, I had applied to a couple different jobs before I graduated. One of them was at Raw Stores, so as an assistant manager. And um, I got that job before I before I graduated. Mm-hmm. So um, I went right into retail management. And retail management is a great career. You make really great money. It's just a lot of hard work. It's like um, you got some labor. You got, you're going to be sweating. You're going to be lifting, moving, twisting. Um, and you deal with a lot of people, you a big team, a big staff. And then you deal with crazy customers, good customers. <laughs> I mean, all kinds of customers every single day. So sociology was actually perfect, a perfect major for retail management. Um, so anybody out there who want to, who's studying sociology and you don't know what to do, retail management is a great, um, career path to get your feet wet in management because you just learned so many different things um I didn't stay in there for too long but uh, (laughs) (laughs) when I got when I started with Ross um I had a six-week training and then they moved me to South Carolina so I was in Greenville South Carolina for about a year and a half and um they actually ended up introducing a role to me that wasn't really um it wasn't public information. So they would give me, they would place me in the worst functioning stores and they would give me about six to nine months to flip the store. And so when the word flip, what that basically means is that you're going into this store to see what is wrong and then you got to fix it. So, um, Majority of the times, my first day at each store, I knew that I would have to identify everyone that was just either placed badly um, or needed to be fired, people who needed to be retrained. Um, and I would have to develop this plan, create this plan, put it into action and have it done within, you know, six to nine months. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I did that for about three stores in South Carolina. And then uh, that got me out to Austin, Texas. So um, I moved to Austin and they put me at the worst store I have ever been. <laughs> like what was wrong? What was wrong with the store? Like just um, if it was the I worst think- store, how do you describe the worst store you've ever been in? Okay, worst store I would say is, um, and I don't want to, yeah. I don't know if they would ever hear this interview, but I would say that they had so, they, they were very busy. And there would be, you know, so for example, if you are in a nicer area at a Ross, you could have five people come in and spend $500. Mm-hmm. When you're placed in these rough stores, you're having 500 people come in and spend five dollars. Oh, so it's a whole different, whole different energy. Yeah, whole different energy. So the traffic is just so many people going in and out, in and out, in and out. You know, the store just always looked a hot mess. Um, had high turnover there. Um, you know, and people were kind of stuck in their ways there. It was a whole different city, whole different culture. People worked differently. It was a whole um, different culture of people. So a lot of the employees that I had at that time were from the Hispanic uh, and Latino community. So mm-hmm. um, just a whole different culture of how I managed because in Greenville, South Carolina, it was more African-American people that I managed mm-hmm. um, there. It was just a whole different culture. So, um, but yeah, the bad story is just having a lot of traffic, yeah. a lot of people spending a little bit of money. So it's more, more things and people to manage more moving pieces than you would like to have. So, um, but I remember what got me out of that field was when they rolled out this new policy saying that part-timers could only receive 12 hours a month, excuse me, 12 hours a week. And, um, you know, minimum just 725 or was 725 at that time. And so there were, you know, kind of, you know, you build a relationship with your team mm-hmm. and your employees. And so I knew that people had kids and people had bills and, you know, they were used to getting up to, you know, 28 hours or 38 hours. And that's a, a huge cut. And that's a huge, huge cut. Yeah. And I just didn't have the stomach to do it. I just couldn't be that person enforcing such a harsh rule. Um, and then also that mean that I would have to either double or triple my staff. So it, it, it made my workload even harder. So um, I got out of that field and got into property management. Mm. That's what to, to property management. And quick question before we, before we get into property management, I always try to take a step back after like each each segue of different roles before like in, in their careers and, and, and ask our guests what they got out of it. But before I ask you that, I do want to ask, uh, and this is going to be a big question, but okay. there's many people that are listening to this podcast that are different stages of life, different stages of careers, different stages of different relationships. But I know there is a certain subset of people that are probably going to be listening to the show right now that their life right now is just not, it's, it's, it's considerable to a bad store. Um, mm-hmm. some things happen, maybe some bad relationships, maybe some bad financial decisions, maybe some bad life decisions, school decisions, what have you. And they're in like in a bad store. And being that you do have experiences flipping bad stores, experiences as a, a life coach, et cetera, you don't have to get a full session, but what are some, <laughs> what are some, what are a couple of things that they could do in order to start to turn that tide around 
over the next six to 12 months? If you had to just, and I know that's a very big question, but what are some, some, some staple things that you've learned through your experiences like flipping stores and just in general that they can kind of apply to kind of flip a bad situation? Yeah, I honestly think that goes back to my um, quote that I opened with, which is to identify the non-negotiables in your life and then stop negotiating. Um, for me, that bad store, it yeah, it was a bad store, but the policy was one of those things that was a non-negotiable for me. I was not willing to ruin these other people's lives for the sake of this company. I was not willing to implement this policy just because, you know, it was better for the business. I was looking at the 60 employees that I had and how negatively it would impact their life. And so I, that was a non-negotiable for me. That was when I said, "Mm, I got to go because I'm not willing to enforce this rule. So when you're thinking about, you know, the place that you are in your life, you have to identify those things that um, you have to assess where you are. So assess where you are right now and then identify where do you want to be? Where do you want to be in the next year or in the next five years? I always tell people to do a one year uh, plan and then a five year plan. And that word plan sounds really, you know, complicated. Mm -hmm. So it's something as simple as this is what I tell all my coaching clients. I want you to write me a list um, and I want you to fill in the blank. In five years from now, I want you want to be able to say what about you or your organization? So five years from now, Greg, what would you want to be able to say about, you know, your podcast? Give me an example. Uh, I would like to say that we have a, a network of podcasts under the umbrella. So we have um, a network of podcasts in the college space, um, in the high school space, as well as a variety in the young adult space, kind of where we're at. Um, so that's one thing I would definitely say. Okay, perfect. So that would be the one thing you would write that one thing down. Okay. And then you're going to continue to do that. Just write things that you want to be able to say in five years. Mm-hmm. After you get your five years done, now you do the same thing for one year. And what it turns into is your to-do list. So once you have those want those things that you want to be able to say within a year, now it's your job to develop a plan to make those things happen. So I think it starts with one, identifying those non-negotiables, things that you are just not willing to sacrifice or give up or, or change or adjust in your life. Stop negotiating those things and then write your one to five year, um, your list of things that you want to be able to say. Um Okay. Write those lists, write the list of the things that you want to be able to say within one year and five years. Um, And then once you got that one year, now that's your to-do list and you create a plan for each thing on that list. Mm. Yeah. And um, we could go further, but we're not. Uh, (laughs) We could go further, but I I just like that. I think the biggest thing, once you assess kind of where you're at and then start building out that plan and then there's some other steps after that. But I think that's that's a critical yeah. kind of just seeing because a lot of times when you're in a dark place, you don't even want to see where you're at. Like seriously, yeah. like when my when my credit was in a dark place, I didn't want to look at it. I'm like, I don't I don't want to see it. I don't want to know how I can prove. I don't want to hear about it. I don't want to see the word credit. I don't care. Mm-hmm. But once you kind of assess it, then it's like, all right, let's let's start digging in this thing. So I can definitely agree. So now that you so so let's go back to your story. You left Ross. Um, you learned a lot from that position. And now you're in property management. 
Uh, why property management and how long did you stay in property management? Yeah, so I fell into property management. I remember I'm in Austin. I was a little taken back because I had moved out there for this job with Ross. And, you know, six months into it or four months into it, I've left Ross. And so I'm like, oh, my God, what am I going to do? So um, I remember looking for an apartment. I was in gym clothes, um, just, you know, regular bum day. And um, it's a bummy day. And I'm looking, uh, I go into this apartment um, leasing uh, center. The leasing agent says, hey, you're really, you're really cool. You got a great personality. Um, Do you need a job? And I was like, ooh, (laughs) I'm looking. And so she's like, okay, have you ever thought about, you know, being a leasing agent? And I'm like, nope, don't even know what it is. Didn't even know it existed. And she's like, well, today's my last day. If you're interested, I can chat with my manager really quick. She's in the back. Um, and you know, maybe you guys can have a conversation about it. I was like, okay, I love that. So I ended up being interviewed in my gym clothes on the spot. Um, I tell her what my, you know, experience was and she just fell in love with me. Two days later, I got a call being asked for back for another interview from another manager. And then two days later, um, they offered me the job. So I, I immediately put in my two weeks notice at Ross. And I started um, working at this, you know, real estate or property management company. And um, that really like took off. So three, three months later, um, I got promoted to assistant manager. Three months later, I got transferred. Three months later, I got recruited from their top competitor. And that's what moved me to Houston. And that's where I landed the role as a regional performance director. So I was overseeing the performance of over, you know, 500 to a thousand employees over the entire state of Texas. So I would have to travel to Austin, to San Antonio, to Dallas, to Houston, um, throughout all their properties within the state of Texas. Um, and that was, that was like the mama, I made it. That was the mama. <laughs> yeah. Like, oh my gosh, you know, I had my, you know, office in the le- on the 11th floor, you know, wearing my little pencil skirt with my, you know, fake red bottoms because I was just trying to play the part. Um, and, you know, I really thought that, I mean, this is what, I, I didn't know this is what I enjoy doing or I never thought that I would get there at that point, but I really enjoyed the work. It was training. It was, you know, developing people, you know, and although I was teaching people how to, you know, um, how I was basically teaching people sales and how to build relationships with people and how to connect and how to just do their job better, how to service, you know, our tenants and residents, um, and our, you know, partners and things of that nature. Um, I really, really loved the work that I did, the type of work that I did. Um, but things kind of went south when, um, I learned that I was pregnant Mm. And I'm in Houston and um, I had to move to Dallas for family purposes. So, you know, we you know wanted to raise our daughter together. So um, moved to Dallas and in Dallas, um, I had a slightly different role. And I remember sitting in a business meeting that was for three hours and the role changed a little bit because I was helping design you know, sitting in meetings with those who were designing the apartment complexes um, and helping staffing, you know, all of these apartment complexes. So it was less about the performance. It was more about, you know, here's a whole p- 
um, plot of land, what are we going to do with it? And so, you know, I was a part of those meetings, building it from the ground up and then going back to the management side, ensuring that, you know, we were appropriately staffed. So I remember sitting in this meeting for three hours and they were talking about um, what type of thermostat that they were going to put in the supply <laughs> And I was like, I zoned out. I remember distinctly. So it was a beautiful day outside, light breeze. You know, I felt like there was a little bird on the window, you know, just looking at me like, what you doing, V? Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, a little bird had got the head cocked to the side. And I just zoned out. And I was like, are we really talking about a thermostat? And, you know, I was the youngest person there. I was the only minority in the room. Um, and so they're looking through their phones like, oh, no, there's this app and there's this and there's that. And I was just like, what am I doing with my life? This is not at all what I signed up for. This is not what I want to be doing. And so the other thing that happened was um, they said they made the comment like we're going to put the nice appliances in you know these buildings. And then in this other building, you're just going to put the basic stuff. And that's for the people who can barely afford to live in downtown Dallas. And I immediately was I took offense to that because I wanted to know what people they were talking about. Um, and I was very sure and clear that it wasn't people that looked like them. It was people that looked like me mm-hmm. that they could barely afford to live in downtown Dallas. So that's when I knew that something had to change. I just didn't know what. And I think um, I honestly didn't have the, the, the courage to do anything because I had a baby on the way. Mm-hmm. And so I was willing to negotiate my happiness um, for the betterment of my unborn child. So I wanted to keep the benefits. I wanted to keep the money, you know, you know, I want to have a great, I want to have or provide a great life for her. So I was willing to sit through three more hours of a conversation or meeting about thermostats because I had a child on the way. Um, so I think, you know, at that time, you know, in the past couple of years, the, that the term woke has kind of became really popular. Yeah. Um, Vernisha was not woke at all. <laughs> I was just not. I was, you know, very comfortable with life. I was not concerned about making a change or having an impact or making any type of difference in the world. I was trying to make this money. Mm-hmm. That's what I was trying to do. And then since I had a child on the way, that's that was my focus. I wanted to make sure that I could provide all of that changed though. When, um, we decided to move back to North Carolina after we had my daughter to just have a little bit more support. Um, which was really challenging for me because I was leaving everything, you know, that I had worked so hard for just to come here and start all over again. So I moved back to North Carolina back in 2016 and that's when my whole world changed. That's when Vernicia woke up. <laughs> mm, so now this is this is the next part of the, the interview. Uh, Vernicia waking up. <laughs> so so how, first of all, how did you wake up and uh and walk us through that transition to kind of where you are today? So I three months after you know I had my daughter, I went right back to work, got right back into property management. But you know now I'm not at the corporate level anymore. I'm at you know the apartment complex, and I'm dealing with, you know, the tenants again, and I'm an assistant manager again. And I'm like, oh, this sucks. 
um, because I know what it felt like. I knew the liberty and the freedom and the money that was, you know, at the corporate level. But I, I had already experienced that corporate level. So I'm like, don't want to go back there either. Um, but what really did it for me was when my daughter was very sick. Um, she had, you know, fever. Her eyes were sunken in. Only three months old. I went to see her on my lunch break. Um, and I stayed for about an hour, 45 minutes to two hours. And when I went back to work, I was told that I couldn't do that. Um, that, you know, my lunch is an hour and which, I mean, for some people they get 30 minutes, but I Mm -hmm. was lucky enough to have an hour, but you know, I was told that I couldn't do that. Um, that I need to check in, get it approved, um, before, you know, I, you know, I care for my sick child. And so, um, that wasn't okay for me. You know, up until that point, I was work, 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 work. You know, I understand policy. I get it. I was the person implementing all of these policies with Ross, you know, so your outside life didn't matter. You just had to figure it out. Um, if you wanted this job, follow the policy, figure home life out. For me, when, for, when it was done to me, when I was in that seat where it was like, figure home life out, this is your job. Um, I said, and excuse my language, but oh, hell no, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I couldn't do it. And it, I, I felt guilty because I had done it in all my other roles. Um, and so to feel like how all of those people felt um, with me being a, their manager, me being not woke. Um, I'm like, dang, you know, this is not cool at all. So I remember saying, hey, you know what? I'm going to go ahead and put in my two weeks. Um and then the very next day, I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm going to just make today my last day. So I didn't even mm. finish out, you know, my two weeks. But I had missed out on my daughter's first laugh. I missed my daughter's first steps. I missed, you know, so many important things or, you know, special moments in her life. Those were non-negotiables for me. And I negotiated them just to make money for someone else. And so I didn't want to do that anymore. So I quit my job literally with no plan. I had no plan whatsoever. I had some money saved. Um, we got out of my the apartment that we were paying. You know, I tried to, you know, adjust bills and try to, you know, make up for the lack of income, you know, that I was bringing in. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, so we were still comfortable. We were still OK. But, um, yeah, I had to. That was when I really woke up because one family was more important to me than money. And, you know, Renisha, without a child. Money was the most important thing, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, um, I didn't want my family to struggle. I didn't want my child to have to struggle. I didn't want to be eating bologna sandwiches and bread as good as bread is. But I didn't want that <laughs> for my adult life. So money was the way to not have to relive those things. And then having that experience when I moved back to Charlotte and having my daughter, I'm like, oh, my gosh, family is the most important thing. And, you know, I had been going away for a while from my, you know, siblings, you know, Um, so being back and getting reconnected with them, that was more important. You know, I was working every weekend, long hours, 60 hours a week. I mean, it was just terrible. And I wasn't really living. I was just existing, you know, being in this kind of like this zone of just a routine waking up go to work come home you know cook clean see see the baby a little bit rock to sleep give her a bath and then go to bed it's just Mm. tired and i think i was still in my master's program and i can't remember you're doing a lot yeah i was just doing a whole bunch of stuff but i just was not willing to 
negotiate my life anymore because I couldn't really look at anything. I couldn't identify what, um, what values I had, you know, I was just, I was just working Mm. and that's not fun at all. I had no purpose whatsoever. So when it, so when was the moment where you you kind of led into starting your next venture, which is a venture you do today? Yeah. So I took six weeks. I told myself six weeks. Um, I took six weeks to one, just recover from everything that I had just went through. So I had to be still, which is really hard for someone like me. I think it's hard for anybody to be still, but just had to be still, you know, get back into a a self care uh, routine. So um, breathing, meditating, working out, spending time outside, you know, feeling the sun on my face and not through the window, (laughs) Um, spending time with my daughter, reading, you know, going back to what I know, which is knowledge and education. And so I started meeting with a few people and I met my 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 now business partner. But um, he told me about this life uh, life coaching certification. I'm like, you know what? I think that's going to be great. And when I went and got my life certification, it was a life changing experience for me because it really helped me see that I had been living life and looking at life the entire wrong way. Um, we, in life, we react a lot and we don't spend enough time, you know, questioning, asking the right questions or prepping ourselves or analyzing and assessing. We don't do enough of that. We just react really, really fast. And so life coaching taught me how to respond. And when you respond, the difference between reacting and responding is time. You're taking time to really ask yourself a few questions before you actually, you know, make an action to react. So um, that life coaching program really changed my life. And then from there, um, I I think I actually had already went and got my small business certification. And that was really cool because it just taught me all, all the things that I didn't know in college about business. That's what it taught me. So mm-hmm flows, revenues, profits, marketing, sales, pitching, all of those things from a business perspective, um, which was is very different when you're working in a, bu- in a business versus on a business. So the small business um, consulting certification, it taught me how to work on a business. And so I went to this life coaching program with my goal was to get a client. Mm-hmm. I'm going to get me a small business consulting sort of like I'm going to get a client for small business consulting from this class. And so um, I walked out of there with my very, very first client. Mm. So my company name was BYE and I had so many different things I wanted it to stand for. So, but I won't take you through that. BYE stands for bringing you excellence. And it stems from me just being a part of you know, a lot of organizations or witnessing a lot of organizations or um, groups and then seeing um, how they could have just done things a lot better Mm -hmm. with just a little bit of extra time or a little bit of extra commitment or just changing one small thing. You know, it's cool to be good. It's awesome to be great. But when you're excellent, it's just a whole nother it's a whole nother energy, you know, you're on a whole nother level. And so I encourage everyone 
uh, to, to strive to be excellence. And according to Pat Riley, excellence is the gradual, it's a gradual result of striving to be better, you know, consistently be better. And that's all excellence is with the, with BYE, um, I wanted these small businesses. I wanted to take them to the next level. And so bringing you excellence, that's what it was all about. Like, how can I get you from good to excellent? So um, I started with small business consulting and then I, you know, started doing life coaching because I wanted people to be excellent in life. Mm -hmm. Um, And then that really took me to um, what and then I joined forces with my business partner and we started doing, you know, youth programming. And, you know, which ended up that's been our niche. So we do nothing but youth programming. And what happened, what we found is there's been these consulting firms or these training agencies that will go out and have a blast with these kids or they'll teach them a training. Sometimes they're boring. Sometimes they're high energy and they're fun. But these kids really don't walk away learning anything. And a lot of people say they do this type of work or they work with youth or at risk youth just to say they did it. And so we have a thing where we say, you know, we we started to really focus on youth programming because youth are more than data. You know, there are so many um, organizations that receive grants, whether they're state, um, city grants or federal grants. And they go through the motions with these grants and these funding. Um and they they'll do whatever to tweak the data to get the funding. Mm-hmm. And that just rubs me the wrong way because according to society, I was an at-risk youth. My business partner was definitely an at-risk youth. He'd been involved in the criminal system um, a few times, you know, in his teenage years. But you know, these are people's lives that we're dealing with. And if there is a pot of money that is available to deliver a certain service, why would we not make it excellent for these youth? You know, um, it doesn't make sense from to me that we that we just give our youth subpar training or experiences or we don't look at how they're going to apply the the knowledge that we give them. So, you know, we teach life skills. We teach, you know, job and career readiness courses. We teach etiquette classes. We do we do it all. Youth leadership development. Um, we're partnered with uh, the Charlotte Mecklenburg Police Department right now. One of the programs that they have is for first time felony offenders. And we've had such great success with that. Um, we take them through 12 weeks of training. We have such a great success with that. Now they are um, we are helping them develop a program for first time misdemeanor offenders because we really have to our youth. Obviously, we know this is a feature. And um, with technology and everything that's going on right now in the world, um, you know, I'm a little concerned. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, so, you know, there has to be somebody in my generation doing this type of work. And right now there's not a lot of us, you know, doing the, doing the work that people don't want to do. Um, I can't tell you how many times I have conversations with people you know, they see an at-risk youth and be like, oh, he's not even worth your time. I said, give him, give it, give me an hour. Give me an hour with him because the money um, and the time that I could make, basically what I've done is, you know, we've landed corporate clients and corporate contracts where, we, you know, we're teaching these, you know, trainings to adults and, you know, they're, they're spending great money on us, which is awesome. But we have decided to really target the youth because, 
they're not getting excellence. They're not even saying that they're, they're not even being exposed to what excellence look like. They don't believe that they themselves can be excellent. So I would rather spend my time. This is where the purpose comes in. This is where the woke Vernisha comes in. The money is not really the object. It's the impact that I'm chasing. And so, um, you know, give me an hour with little DJ, <laughs> give me an hour with him. And I bet you I can change his life within an hour, mm-hmm. you know? Uh, there are so many other people that just give up like, oh, no, he's not worth your time. Yes, he is. He's worth my time because there's another life that's depending on DJ. But you don't even realize that because you're just, you know, not woke, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> nah, that's 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 definitely that. And, and a question about all that and just in general, how do you define success? Um, I don't really. Um, I don't think there's ever going to be a point where. Someone could say, yeah, I'm successful or yes, success. I think progress is what people should shoot for and aim for, you know, to do a little bit more than you did yesterday, do a little bit better than what you did last year. Um, And as long as you can, if you're tracking yourself and seeing the things that you want to accomplish or wish to accomplish, um, as long as you're making progress, that is successful to me. Success is not an end destination, but that's how the world has painted that the the picture of success. That like when you reach this point, boom, success. And that's not what it is. I think um, it's something that you are constantly working uh, toward to be successful. But I don't think you will ever be able to say I'm successful because you can always do more and someone probably already has done more. Uh-huh. So, you know, who are you to say that you're successful? I let other people, you know, say that I'm successful. That's fine. Y'all can say that, but I just want to be progressive and prog- uh, you know, continue to improve anything that I do. Yeah. That's, 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 that's right up the alley. And I also want to ask too, how is it balancing between being a mother and being a full-time uh, business owner as well. It's the hardest thing ever. I ain't going to lie to you. Um, you know, right now I got a lot going on. So, you know, I have my for-profit company, which is great. And I, and I found myself working with a lot of um, young men. And so, um, and I can't really bring my daughter around, yeah. you know, that type of thing. When I'm in the office, she comes with me. Um, for me... What I had to do was, one, realize that I needed help and ask for help, which I still struggle with today, um, asking and receiving that help. I remember um, my mom, she called me. She was like, what are you doing? And I was like, what do you mean? What, what do you mean? What am I doing? I'm at work. And so she's like, have you had any rest? I said, no, ma'am. She's like, where's Nala? She's with me. <laughs> and she's like, why is she with you? And I'm like, because um, I didn't want to bother anyone else, you know, with her. Um, and she was like, if you need help, all you have to do is ask. Um, and there are a lot of different dynamics that I have to deal with, too. You know, um, being a single mom, you know, um, and co-parenting. It's it's a lot of stuff that you have to um, navigate through a lot of communication. You got different sides of the family, you know, um, that you have to appease. And so it is very, very, very challenging. Um, but what I tell anyone and what I tell myself every day is to just stop and breathe. All I can do is what I can do. I can only do the best that I can. Um, and 
I can't do nothing if I'm not breathing. <laughs> <laughs> and if you if you had to boil it down to like two or three things though for for our audience out there that are single mothers or single fathers out there that not only just in, like from entrepreneurship from, uh, just just trying to do a lot of things and trying to move forward but you do have that like from the lessons you've learned and what you've been been through thus far what would be like your top two to three things you would say to them right now that are listening um, the number one thing I would say is that you do not have to sacrifice your life, for your child. Um, that's something that I feel like everybody, uh, there's a common misconception uh, that once you have a child, your life ends. And that's not true at all. Um, I think that um, when you have a child, you have to learn how to share your time and share your life. But it should be fuel for you to really um do what it is that you want to do because now you have a little person looking up to you at all times. So you have to be the example. You have to be their first role model. So your life does not stop. That's when it should really truly begin because now you are the sole, um, you know, you are the only person that's directly impacting, you know, this child. So you have to be your best, the best version of yourself. So that's the first thing I would say. The second is to real, if you have help out there, um, use it as much as you possibly can. I know I dealt with guilt a lot, you know, like, Oh, I don't want her to bother you or, Oh, I don't want, you know, to like, you know, I would always apologize. Like, Oh, I'm so sorry. Or thank you so much. Or, um, don't, don't apologize for any, any, for asking for help at all. I think that, um, you know, if you have to do that, then you need to get a different set of help, uh, a different set of hands to help you. Um, and if you don't have help, find help. So there are programs out there. For example, here in Charlotte, there's a, a program um, at uh, Bethlehem Center, and they provide free child care. The YMCA provides discounted child care for a couple hours a day. Um, so if you have help, use your help. If you don't have help, find help um, will be my second. And the third is... Um, you have to, you really got to take your breaks. <laughs> <laughs> um, I didn't realize this at all. I mean, like I said, I've dealt with guilt a lot, you know, and that could be just from dealing with postpartum, um, which is something that's very serious. But um, a weekend, if you could have a weekend of solitude for just you, um, without your child, I think that is so, 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 so important. You know, being a single mom or a single father, um, it is challenging just because you have to navigate, you know, so many things in life, especially if you're trying to be an entrepreneur or work. So just the day to day things is where you really I mean, it's challenging. You need the, that that help. But a break, I mean, a break is when you have <laughs> days, OK, like a weekend where you know, baby girl, baby boy is with someone that you trust. You don't have to check in. They ain't got to check in with you, nothing. And you just get to reset all together and just, you know, um, have a little bit of self-care. And self-care sometimes could be having a drink. You know, it could be going to a party. It could be going to the beach. It could be sleeping all day. Um, whatever type of self-care you can find, you have to have 
that um, consistently, not every, not once a year, not twice a year, it needs to be consistent because parenthood is really draining. I just seen a post today that said motherhood is equal to 2.5, two and a half full-time jobs. Goodness gracious. Yeah, study that just did that. On average, a, a mom works from 8.30, or excuse me, 6.30 in the morning to 8 p.m. for seven days a week. That's 98 hours. 98 hours. That's two and a half full-time jobs. Just motherhood. Just watching the baby. That's not working. That's not taking care of herself. That's not doing anything else. So you have to have a break. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that. Preach, preach, preach. <laughs> Before we get to our future and our last round, I did want to ask a couple questions in regard to uh, securing your first client as a, as you and your partner, working us through, because I know there's people out there that they, they've been doing one-on-one stuff and they've had moderate success, but they're a little bit nervous about branching out and securing like a, a bigger contract, right? Because I mean, that could it, it can be a little bit nervous. I mean, you, you see a, a proposal come out and you're like, should I like, and they're asking for all these qualifications and you're looking at your resume like, I'm, I've done a lot, but do I measure up and who am I competing against? And can I actually deliver on such a, a contract with X tens of thousands when maybe you've only worked with t- maybe 50 to a hundred, $150 gigs. And then now all of a sudden now, you're applying for something which has a, a a much wider scope and you can maybe you could be a little bit more intimidated. So kind of work us through kind of your mindset when you and your partner kind of first went through your first uh, round of, of getting a real contract or proposal. Um, so we, our mindset is something that's that we c- constantly are aware of and we are working on and, you know, we protect it. Um, we are extremely positive. Mm-hmm. So we, if you have done the work, um, you've prepped yourself, you've studied the client uh, and things of that nature, you really have no reason to doubt yourself. Um, I remember clients asking me, uh, you know, who have you worked with? Or, you know, can you show me your capability statement? I'm like, what the heck is a capability statement? I don't even know what that is, you know, but we did the research to find out what a capability statement is. And that's basically like your business resume. Who have you worked with? Are you certified? Um, what are your services? Who do you typically target? Um, who have you previously worked with? Um, but I think, uh, you know, for me, I, we are very spiritual, mm-hmm. you know, my business partner and I. So we will pray. We will meditate um, because I really, truly believe that uh, if it's for you, it's for you. You know, you have to do all the right things. Not all not not everything that's listed out, but you have to do all the right things. And I believe that if your mental space, your mental health and your mental capacity is not in a healthy space, that directly affects your business, directly affects your business. So if for a second you have doubt, then that one ounce of doubt could actually destroy the entire thing. So you can't be doubtful in the work that you do. You have to believe in yourself, you have to be extremely comfortable, uh, confident, and you also have to um, make sure that you have done the right things in as far as prep, preparing, preparation, doing the research, practicing these pitches, looking over, um, you know, contracts or previous contracts. For you know, me and my business partner, we walk into a room like we run it. Okay, like hey, we are here. 
you know, I don't know where y'all been, but we've been here. <laughs> you know, that's how we walk in. And that's all internal. We'll never, you know, verbally say that. But yeah. we, we, we have this aura about us that we know what we are doing. We have perfected our craft and we're going to continue to perfect it as our craft changes. Um, so that confidence level has to be extremely important. And if you don't know, people say fake it till you make it. I have a weird feeling about that. I don't if you, I don't think you have to fake it till you make it. You just need to find out. Yeah. Find information, pick up the phone, call someone, look for the answer. So you don't have to fake it till you make it. Because what people fail to realize is that the corporate level or the, the people who's making these decisions, they can tell, they can sniff that, they can smell that. They know that you're faking it. So don't, I wouldn't encourage people to necessarily do that. Do the extra work to get the answers that you need. So you won't even have to find yourself in an uncomfortable position of doubt. Mm, I love that. I love that's that's some that's some jewels right there. And our last question before we go to like I, I got a couple things about the future and then our our closing culture chain rapid fire round is what what would you say right now is I wouldn't say struggle but what, what's your current your biggest current obstacle as an entrepreneur? Our biggest challenge is a uh, capacity. Um, we've done the work. We got a good name out there, um, and. There are, you know, we're getting more people contacting us for the work. So it's meeting the need of the client. So it's kind of like this is um, you, you'll find your uh, I feel like entrepreneurs. Um, we get into this space where we're like, we need more people. But where's that money going to come from? Mm-hmm. And you need you need more clients but where are the people going to come from to serve it and so i'm in you know a lot of work that's service so in order for me to get more contracts i need more people in order for me to have more people i need more contracts so it's the time matching the time mm, yeah the biggest challenge so we can put in proposal after proposal after after proposal we may not get any of them so if we've already hired people on it's like oh uh, hey oh, sorry like you know so that's really <laughs> a really awkward space to be in, but that's, we're navigating through it though. We're, we're killing it. And I think, um, I think you just have to, what we do, I'm interviewing all the time. I'm interviewing all the time, seeing people's interest, you know, I'm engaging those people that I'm interviewing. And once we land, you know, the next contract, I got some people that's been waiting that I've built rapport with, built a relationship with that I can just bring, you know, on, on in. I will say that when we first started, we wanted to have people with the entrepreneurship mindset, which wasn't necessarily the best idea for our business. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> then they want to take your business and they would like, so it, yeah, you got <laughs> not the best idea we learned from that um and and that's okay um but yeah i think it's just you know capacity and expanding because you know we have opportunity we have you know potential client in philadelphia right now we have one um um, yeah uh, pennsylvania we have one there we have one in texas we have one in georgia so it's going from you know just the city of charlotte being in this you know small community you know and we're able to work the carolinas that's fine but you know to go from a small company to a national company that's what we're trying to navigate through right now which is where our biggest challenge is Mm. but it's a great challenge yeah that's a that's a that's a that's a great challenge to have and i definitely uh wish you much success on that uh, so last so when we go to the future round um, i always try to ask people like kind of what the thoughts of the future is and for you what what do you think is next for you personally and um or or as a business for the rest of 2018 like what does that look like for y'all um so for 
us, I think, is, you know, growing our 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 company, getting our for profit to a point where we don't necessarily have to work in it so much so we can focus more on our nonprofit, which Gosh, I haven't even talked about. I know, that. I know. So this this is a segue. I I think that was like an alley oop, a segue. Oh, okay. Yeah, it was a segue to jump into that because that, that's something big that uh, I definitely we were remissed if we didn't talk about that. Gosh, yeah, I totally forgot to talk about that. But yeah, so, you know, getting our for-profit company to a point where we don't have to work in it so much so we can focus on the growth of our, of our nonprofit. And our nonprofit is called Generation of Excellence. Uh, notice excellence is just, throughout everything that we do. And uh, one of our, the purpose of our nonprofit is really to uh, create um, opportunities for economic development and mobility for youth. Um, So specifically in the city of Charlotte, um, you know, there was a study that was done and Charlotte scored 50 after 50, meaning if you're born poor in Charlotte, you're probably going to die poor in Charlotte. And so oh, um, we didn't like that. And we wanted to do something about that. So we, uh, you know, s- started our nonprofit uh, really to target that, that study, economic development for the people here in Charlotte. So one of our programs um, is an all girl program. And um, we decided to do this um well, one, I honestly, it just stemmed from me and like my background, but it's called the Miss All Natural Pageant. And I know when people hear the word pageant, they're like, what? A pageant has no in-depth meaning whatsoever. It's just girls in pretty dresses, you know, with makeup everywhere and big hair, um, you know, and they, it couldn't possibly have a deeper meaning to it. But ours does. And so the Miss All Natural summer program is a 12-week program for young ladies who uh, come from low socioeconomic backgrounds. So for 12 weeks, we take them through the same type of trainings that we take our clients through, life skills, communication, job and career readiness, um, conflict management, all of these things, um, etiquette, resume building, the whole nine. And then we also pair it with preparing them for a pageant. The unique thing about this is that it's all natural. So these young ladies, they go through this program without wearing any makeup, without wearing any weave, without wearing any fake nails, any body shapers, nothing. So I want these young ladies to get up, take a shower, put on some lotion and call it a day. (laughs) Uh, Well, of course, put clothes on, but, (laughs) you know, I don't have to do anything else. And the reason why we did that was because there's so much focus on the external appearance right now. And um, all of that time that, you know, these young ladies are spending in the mirror or at the store you know, buying clothes or trying on clothes or just, you know, looking at other women wishing that they were like them, that's time that could be spent developing themselves, you know? So we wanted to remove external pressure of looking and feeling and being a certain way and use that energy to help these ladies build their skills, build their talents, build their gifts, 
you know, expand their knowledge. And so for 12 weeks, that's what we do. And uh, we teach them, um, you know, how to walk in the hills. We teach them, you know, how to sit. We teach them how to do a pageant. We teach them all the fun stuff. And people always ask me, why a pageant? Why did you, where did that come from? And it really stemmed from engaging with the young ladies. You know, there are tons of programs out there right now, that tons of all-girl programs. Um, I didn't want this to be just another one. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, once I, you know, talked about a pageant and girls seen a crown and a sash, they got super excited. <laughs> uh huh. Okay, if that's what it's going to take to engage you, let's do it. And I have tons of pageant experience anyway. So, um, you know, my most recent title was Miss Black Charlotte 2017. So I have tons of experience. So it was perfect to apply something that I had done to kind of just help me get ahead. Um, and I was very passionate about, you know, uh, pageant life anyway. So to apply something fun that I enjoy with something of substance to these ladies and then putting the spin on it being all natural was something that really took off. So last year we had about you know, with li- with literally no marketing, I paid for no marketing. We had over 300 plus people show up. We reached over um, 100,000 people on Facebook. We have over, I think, uh, 25,000 views on our, you know, promo video with literally no marketing done. And um, that was, it was the first, it's never been done in the world before. You know, there's never been a pageant one that has a whole a summer program attached to it and two a pageant that is all natural every pageant out there has some you know makeup or hair extensions or fake nails those things are allowed with this one none of that is allowed mm, that's a very different thing right yeah yeah so our focus is really just you know growing that you know this year and you know we've landed a partner the ymca they reached out to us and said they loved it and they said hey can you guys bring this to four of our facilities this summer so last year we served about seven girls this year we have the ability to serve 100 so the growth from seven to 100 girls is is more than i could have ever dreamed of um so yeah we we are in we're in high we're in the 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 peak season for for that program um so yeah that's that's our focus man that's 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 gonna be huge like when is the actual pageant is is it this year right yep so it's this year the pageant will be august i want to say it's 26 it's on a sunday um august 26 it'll be at 4 p.m um, the location we're in, we have two locations up in the air right now, just waiting to hear back from them. But it'll be either UNC Charlotte or CPCC. Um, but, you know, if you follow us on all our social media um, tags, which is Miss All Natural Pageant, you know, we'll have those updates ready for everyone. I love it. I love it. At the end of the show, we'll make sure we get all your social media information. So we ex- people that want to um, stay up to date, maybe help out in some type of way, because I'm, I'm pretty sure there's probably some areas that they can help help the pageant out. They can find more information. So we'll definitely have that. OK, so as we come to the close, as we come to the close of the show, I have a rapid fire round. I just asked five questions, rapid fire questions. And hopefully I can get rapid fire answers. You ready to go? I'm ready. Uh, what's the best piece of advice that you have never received? <laughs> the best piece of advice I've never received was um excuse my language, um, but to tell my mind to shut the- <laughs> <laughs> 
I'm dead. Yo, you wild, Joe. So where did that come from? <laughs> um, because my mind, your mind just it can be so powerful, and if you uh, if you allow it to talk too much, it can talk you out of things. It can talk you out of your own greatness. Um. So yeah, I've listened to it too many times. There have been times where I just needed to 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 act, to do, to go, to be, um, and not necessarily listen. I, I would get. I, I guess I would say it's that bad wolf inside that's talking. Mm, so yeah. yeah. <laughs> if you could add bad wolf, if you could add one habit and take away one habit, what would they be? Oof, I would add. Um, I would add. Um, like doing abs, like doing a hundred like ab workout, <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> like in the morning and in the night. Like I wish that that was just like something I could do like clockwork. That'd be a great ha- a habit. If I could take away a habit, it would be um, eating bread. Oh man. I was just thinking the day, like seriously, I was thinking the day I'm like, I've been hitting, it's crazy. I've been hitting the hundred, hundred up the ab boy. Like I'm feeling results. I'm feeling good. But then my boy just hit me about uh going, cause every Tuesday night, Bar Louie has $5 burgers and fries. And I'm like, I'm going to go and I'm going to eat a burger and fry. Like I'm, I'm I, I, bread. I just love bread. I love bread as well. So, and, but the thing is, once you cut carbs, oh, you just start getting shredded. You just, your face start getting lean and you just look so, ah, why does it have to be like that guy? <laughs> <laughs> I never understood that. Uh, what is your favorite book and why? Mm. My favorite book, I know it's so cliche, but it is the Bible. Um, and my favorite book in the Bible is Proverbs because that is the book of wisdom. And that's one that I just read over and over and over and over again. Um, yeah, I just, my goal in life is to just be wise, to be a woman of God, Um despite my dirty mouth at times, but (laughs) (laughs) um, to be a woman of God, to be a godly woman. One of my prayers is that, you know, when I walk into a room, I want people to know like, wow, you know, that's a woman of God. So um, I feel like reading, feeding my spirit, the, the, the book of wisdom is one way to help me get there. Amen. And you better use for for half your life. You were 6 a.m. doing a, a scripture a day, a sermon a day. So if you <laughs> it's going to take a long, a long time to wipe off that glow. <laughs> uh, what would you say is your biggest fear? Gosh, uh, it used to be, you know, fear of failure, but I, that's not even an option anymore. So um, I would say my biggest fear and I, I wish I could say I don't have any, but I do. And that would be um, that I'm not the best mom um, that I that I should be, and that is nothing but the devil. But um, but yeah, that's a fear that just kind of lingers over me all the time. Like, gosh, am I doing what I am I doing the most that I could be doing? Could I be doing something more? Does she need to be this? Does she need to be that? Um, did I not teach you this the right way? So yeah, that's that's one of my fears. Mm, that's big. Yeah, I hate it. And if you were the president of the United States, what is the first thing you would do? Um, the first thing I would do can I, can I do two things? Yeah, you can do you can do two things. Okay, first thing <laughs> I would do is um. Uh, okay, wait, three. I got three. Uh, <laughs> the first one would be to um make all education free. The second would be to make healthcare free. And the third would be to raise minimum wage. 
No, nah, those are all very, very critical. Very, and they're all kind of intertwined in a sense. Um, yeah, that's, that's, yeah. I, 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 whenever you can get a chance to run for president, uh, let, let, let our nation know we'll get on behalf of it. And, and I definitely will, uh, I will join the campaign staff as well. And I, and I can't wait to, to march on to those efforts. Okay. Right. <laughs> um, and our last question, we're done with the round, but our last question of every podcast, because everybody that comes in the show, I call a culture change agent because they're changing their culture in their own unique way. And this question is specifically towards that. If you could change one thing about society, most specifically our African-American culture, what would it be and why? Mm, I would change the, um, I would change I guess, how do, how do I word this? I would change the impact that hip hop has on our black community. Um, I feel like these rappers get out there. And, first of all, hip hop is one of the most influential, um, you know, genres of music. Just, it just, it's one of the most influential things in the world. It has changed the world, you know, you know, um, the Asian culture, they have adapt, they have accepted the hip hop culture. You know, um, there are people who know a hip hop song and not the name of the, the hip hop artist. So they they are I mean, hip hop has just kind of taken the world by storm. It's changed how people speak. It's changed how people in corporate speak. It's changed how, you know, news anchors. And I remember when when Kanye West came out with Swagger Like Us and then out of the blue. Every, all the news anchors started using the word swagger. <laughs> he just has the, this swagger about him. And it's like, wait a minute, you ain't never even used that word. So I would change the impact of hip hop because I feel like it's such a powerful tool that that is being used for something negative, especially within our black community. I wish that like in order to be a rapper that you had to take a course on how to use your success to positively impact, you know, the black community. Like I wish there was that was a requirement where, you know, before you can be a rapper, you gotta take this class. You gotta, you know, um, you know, dedicate you know, the, your life and your success to really uplifting your people, because that is something that we don't see. They give them all these chains. They give them, you know, um, all of these aesthetics and, and things that looks cool. But like, what are they really doing with with the power that they have and starting an organization is cool and great, but it's changed the world. So I don't understand why the hip hop community can't change or excuse me, the hip hop industry. And these artists and people in it, I don't understand why it can't change our community. If it's already changed the world, why can't it change yeah. what we have here for the better? Now, nah, that's deep. And I think it's it's kind of it's a slippery slope in a sense, because and I know you probably seeing it with the work you do firsthand with with maybe individuals that it's hard when when you when you're coming up and you're raising an environment to say, say, if you're raising um you're raising and, and government, government housing and all you, the stuff like the stuff you rap about is really stuff that you've seen, stuff you live through. And then to ask like to some of them being some of them that are maybe not the most positive role models in their own head and from where they come from, they think they are being a positive role model. I mean, just the fact that they are on TV or that they have multiple cars or that they can provide clothes and stuff for their children, et cetera. That there is. So this, this, that's such a, 
the rap industry is just such a in in what you said is is critical because the thing is the effect they have on the culture is way bigger than just the people that's in the hood though like yeah my brother was never touched the hood but he's an aspiring rapper now and i listen to some of his tracks i'm like bro what in the world bro you ain't living that life dude what you do what you do what you in a private school like like I, i'm confused like how are you how, how are you this rapper like what in the world and you have it's in so many different pockets and this is just in so many different areas so i do agree it's just such a a hard thing to tackle, which is why I think the work that you're doing and your company and you and your business partner are doing with your company is so pivotal, not only for the young black men that have been are incarcerated, et cetera, but also to for this this and this all natural pageant. So it's kind of cool that you've been able to do a lot of work with young black men um, or young men that not just black, but young men that have been incarcerated for the system, as well as having this pageant with the young black ladies, because the culture also affects the way we treat our women as well. Yes, yes. Absolutely. So, Absolutely. so I'm just grateful and I, and I hope you can continue to, to do this work and do it on the biggest uh, platform because it definitely needs to be done. And um, I'm excited. And I, and I just want to say, as we wrapped up this interview, thank you for your time. Thank you for your thoughtfulness and thank you for your ambition uh, to, 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 to continue to do more for the culture because you have a child like flat out. A lot of people that once they got the kid, they got a job. It's like my kid is my culture. If I'm, and, and I understand that. But for you to take that next step forward and to help other people when you already have a kid, I think that speaks volume of your character and uh, for the culture. Yeah, thank you so much. And it's only beginning. She's only two and a half. So we got- <laughs> <laughs> I-, I may be speaking a different story. <laughs> no, no, I'm joking. But it, it is my honor to serve um, because I know that that's what I was put on this, on, you know, on this planet to do, which is serve. And so it's my honor to do that. Yep. So where can everybody find out more information about your for profit, your nonprofit, your social media? Like what are all these hashtags? What are the links? What, what give me all that good stuff so I can put it on the show notes, but also too for our listeners that they can keep up with what you got going on. Yeah. Okay. So for, for my for profit company, bringing you excellence, my website is really simple. It's B Y E L L C dot org. Um, again, for bringing you excellence, my for-profit company is byellc.org. And, you know, we are the youth experts. That's what I like to call us. So anything revolving youth, um, um, involving youth, that's what we do. You know, we are the people that you need to be in contact with. Um, my nonprofit is Generation of Excellence. And you can, our website is generationofexcellence.org. Um, and our, um, Facebook pages for those, we have Facebook pages for those, not anything other, not anything else. Um, but our Facebook page is, um, generation of excellence and our, it's, it's the company name, uh, for BYE is BYE LLC. Mm. Um, and then for our all natural pageant, Miss All Natural, um, you can go to missallnatural.org. And our Instagram name is Miss All Natural Pageant. And our Facebook name is Miss All Natural Pageant. And if you want to hear any coaching or anything from me, my Instagram is Miss V C E O. That's M I S S V C E O. Ooh, I love it. I love it. I love it. So all that information will be on the show notes, Minority Trouble as a Nation. And as we close it out, as we close it out, like I always do, like I always do, like I always do, I need you to do two things and two things only. One, first, make sure you leave a review on this channel. And number two, number two, number two, make sure you continue to change the freaking culture.
Good night.